Hello, and welcome to the Research Valorization podcast series. My name is Sarah Jabber, Manager Business Development at UIIN, and your host for today. In this series, we will be exploring different topics related to research valorization and commercialization at universities. Research valorization is a term that's becoming used more frequently, which focuses more on creating value and impact from research, and not necessarily direct commercial value. At UIN, we are passionate about university industry society engagement, and how can we support and enable institutions to achieve and create more impact. As such, valorization has become a key topic of interest for us, where through our own research, we have focused on identifying the skills needed for valorization and creating impact, and through our training, equipping researchers at different stages in their careers with these skills. In today's episode, we welcome our guests, Yeti van Ginkel, owner at Care for Impact in the Netherlands, Margaret evans Gallia, Executive Director of the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM and co-founder of Women in STEM Australia, and Chris Fellingham, Social Sciences and Humanities Lead at Oxford University Innovations and the founding director of the ARC Accelerator. Our guests will discuss how best to support and embed valorization and commercialization within the university while addressing both STEM and social science and humanities disciplines. I hope you will enjoy this discussion. Don't forget to share this episode with your colleagues and leave us any comments. each of the speakers to discuss, well, first they introduce their role, what they do, but also from their perspective, discuss one key challenge that they face or observe, which uh, I understand is very difficult to only think of one challenge, but also two elements that you believe uh, are crucial when it comes to commercialization, uh, valorization, or entrepreneurship. So I'd first like to call on Yeti to, um, yeah, just get started and maybe share some of your insights with us. Thank you, uh, Sarah. First of all, uh, I'm very uh, honored and grateful to be here. I really like to discuss this topic. And as you said, it is uh, on a lot of agendas and, uh, and a hot topic in the Netherlands at the moment. As you already introduced me, I've had the luxury of looking at this valorization innovation uh, problem or challenge from different perspectives. So indeed, I've been the scientist, I've been the inventor, I've been the, the technology transfer officer, and I've been the entrepreneur. And now I'm um, a bit more in a, in a coaching position. And, and what I see every time I switched roles, my perspective actually completely changed. It's not that I wasn't open before, but you just get your, your new view, you get new information, you work with it in a different way. And I see that there's actually still a large gap between uh, what you, you face as an entrepreneur, what you face as a scientist, what you face from your universities, and what you see in the, in the Dutch discussions. I don't know how it is around the globe, but there's a lot of discussion about conflict of interest. There's a lot of discussion about state aid. There are discussions about universities being too greedy in their licensing deals with, uh, with, with startups. And, and I think that is one challenge that, that, is, uh, that is really large because it is slowing the process down. It is sometimes even stopping innovations from actually getting out there because of the, the fact that you cannot get together with all the these people that uh, that have to work on this. So I think if you then look at the yeah, what are the two elements to to actually overcome this? I think it works really well if you 
uh, are in a position where you can put all the interests of the other people or the other parties aside, and you can really focus on the invention together. So with the university, with the researcher, with the entrepreneur, with the investor, if, if possible, sit together and, and via eh, a co-creation process that we like to use for actually coming to good products. Also, this is something you have to do together. So see if you can find your shared goals, find your shared objectives, and then from there, see what's needed to actually make this work. Work. Instead of the other way around, what happens now, at least and a lot of TTOs that I dealt with, you scout the technology, you assess the potential, and you immediately go to protecting it and trying to license it out. Instead of together with the people who have to do it, actually see what's needed to, uh, to get there. And I think the other thing that's needed there is a bit more flexibility, because I think, at, especially at universities, we sometimes like to hide behind the rules. So we like to, if something feels a bit scary, we say, ah, we can do it because of state aid, or we can do it because uh, of conflict of interest. And I think a lot more is actually possible than what we do now. But if you have a clear goal together, then it also becomes easier to search the boundaries of, uh, of what you can do within your own institution. So I think that would be my uh, challenge and uh, <laughs> key elements. Perfect, thank you. I think you've already raised some really important topics. Um, these structural challenges, especially in the mindset issues that really sometimes, as you said, can prevent and slow down innovation. So really interesting to then explore ways, ways around that as well. So thank you. Chris, I'd like to ask you to, to go next, please. Yes, and uh, thanks for inviting me here. Um, so I guess everything I say will kind of be through the lens of social sciences and humanities. I do occasionally deal with STEM-based projects, but that's really not my area. And I think um, for me, my kind of the top challenge is actually, I've sort of gone for a meta level one, which is actually creating a culture of entrepreneurship among the researchers. And I noticed this extremely, in sort of an extreme form at Oxford, because Oxford has a long history of academic entrepreneurs. Uh, it fun, spun out its first company in the 1950s. Um, so it has quite a long history there. Um, but of course, there was absolutely nothing in the social sciences and humanities. And if I were to look across to the medical sciences division at Oxford, which is extremely active, they have a quite long history of entrepreneurship. And that's become even more kind of uh, acute recently. And you kind of think, what are the benefits of a culture? Well, one of them is that it actually itself selects the people to some extent. So instead of you as a TTO having to try and persuade people why entrepreneurship might be a good thing, that's really hard. If they've never thought about it before, that's a huge journey you're asking them to do. And it's probably not going to happen in a feasible timeline. And a lot of what the culture does is it creates a sort of background element where people already kind of over time acculturate to the idea of entrepreneurship, that it could be an exciting thing. And that kind of does a lot of the hard yards for you. And I think that's absolutely critical. And there are different elements of that culture, which I think come together. One is that um, it gives them examples of how research in their area can become you know, a startup or a license. In the social sciences, that was really hard because we basically had no examples. We kind of knew intuitively, we knew that you know, ed tech is a thing, fintech is a thing. There have been social ventures trying to tackle difficult social problems. These are all things you could feasibly see them doing, but we couldn't say, hey, look, your peer did this. And that was pretty hard because what happened is they're like, well, all the peers I know that have done this are scientists. Ergo, this is not for me. So that was one thing. The second thing is the flip of that, which is at the start, a lot of what I was doing was going out there and trying to sell this to people. Hey, look, we can do these now. 
I'm here, I'm here to support you. Oxford supports social science and humanities ventures, which is kind of like a kind of broadcast approach. But actually a much more effective approach is peer envy. If they knew that one of their peers had started doing a startup, and they were, I'm definitely as smart as them, my research is better, then they will be much more likely to think about a startup going forward. And that's exactly what happened in medical sciences. Uh, all these ambitious alpha type doctors were sort of thinking, well, that person's just got funded for their medical science startup. I could definitely do that. It needs to go on my CV. And um, I think that makes it a lot easier than sort of universities trying to kind of change them. It's just, you know, use the natural peer envy uh, to drive things forward. And I think, you know, just to cap it off, when we think about, you know, the benefits of research to the world, you think about how scientists usually sell it. They usually say, well, you know, why do you fund physics? Why do you fund computer science, et cetera? All the benefits usually boil down to things that were ultimately commercialized. When we think about all the advances in physics, usually it boils down to, well, we got transistors and from that we got computers and weren't they pretty amazing? And the answer is yes, of course they were, or the internal combustion engine, whatever. And I think that social science will need to go on some of that journey and accept that, accepting that commercialization is a dirty word. <laughs> you know, the entrepreneurship journey will be a big part of generating very large impact ultimately uh, from the social sciences and humanities. So for me, culture change is the top thing. If I could pick two elements for success, well, I, I really appreciated sort of Yeti's comments. Um, I benefited a lot at Oxford from the fact that it done spin outs for a while and it had a very formal process that they clearly articulated was on a website of how you spin out a company. It, it was basically, if you do these things, you can have your spin out. And it was my job to kind of guide all the researchers through it. It is not the case at most universities in the UK that I've seen that there is a transparent process. They're sort of like, well, we'll talk to you. We'll do some feasibility. At some point, a committee will meet and make a decision. We won't tell you who's on that committee. We won't tell you how long it takes. It might take two to three years. And I'm sort of thinking, this is insane. You know, in, in no other startup world would we accept these kinds of limitations. And particularly for sort of, uh, I see it in social science and humanities, the, the entrepreneurial part's crucial. They haven't usually got a bit of hard IP that is so valuable that the investor's going to come, whatever. They have to do more work as an entrepreneur to find the market. And if we're saying, actually, you need to spend all these months dealing with the university process, that's just so demoralizing. So I think actually having a really clear and simple process is critical. And I see my job basically is to get them through it as quickly as possible. I basically say, here's the process. These are the hurdles. And I'm going to help you jump them. And then you're going to get your spin out at the end of it. And I think that's important. The second element for success, and again, I think this, this has particular salience for the social sciences and humanities. We used to do just for-profit ventures at the University of Oxford. And then about five years ago, we gained official approval to do social ventures, which we defined fairly loosely as, you know, just a venture whose primary purpose rather than profit was, you know, a defined social or environmental good. It could be anything, but it wasn't profit. I would say over probably just over 60% of the social science and humanities researchers wanted to do a social venture. They said, I, I didn't do this for profit. And usually it made sense because a lot of social scientists in particular are focusing on societal problems. And if we didn't have the vehicle of a social venture, then we didn't have the tool needed for them to create a venture out of their research and we wouldn't have got what we did. So um, yeah, that would be my second element of success. Thank you, Chris. Also, uh, really, really interesting points that you raise. 
And I think that um, uh, there's a, a comment in the chat about pure envy, so simple, so powerful, completely agree. Uh, I think um, also about it's often about having role models or a recognition and knowing that, oh, if, as you said, if someone similar to me has done it, why can't I do it? And then, Margaret, that probably links into as well the whole concept of, for example, women in STEM and, and mentoring and having these people that you can that you can look to. Um, but also, I think uh, one one thing we often find uh, we've done a lot of surveys and we often ask, you know, what is your motivation to uh, undertake research or to engage with external stakeholders? And almost always the top one is to positively impact society. So fundamentally research is aimed at, at, at having that impact. So of course, then having the opportunity to have a social venture or a non, not necessarily a for-profit venture is, is really uh, interesting. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to be here. I have loved the comments that have been made so far, you know, focus on the invention, have the peer envy because STEM is really, really competitive, um, but particularly that underpinning of the culture. For me, I have seen through my work and through my engagement with the broader sector, because I cut across a lot of the different sectors, it's always about people. People make research and innovation happen. And so people need to be connected, they need to have the skills, they need to have the know-how. And that can actually bring people closer together, build trust and respect for each other's capabilities and skills and understanding. And that can break down barriers. Uh, I, I see it every day. So I, the program that Sarah's referred to is the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM, which has evolved into a suite of programs. So we have the mentoring, the professional development and the networking between PhD students very early in their career and ECRs with high level industry leaders so that they get that mentoring and that support and that understanding of the broader sector it's about educating them it's not about saying come and work in industry it's also about saying come and collaborate with us we're right here and they learn how to do that and so they're given a great deal of advice um, tips and tricks and it goes for a year so these are enduring partnerships that are built and we know more than 70 percent are staying connected for over five years we're also introducing imnus engage because um imnus engage and imnus ignite rather so Imnus Ignite is our internship program. It's targeted at postgraduates. A lot of companies say all of our internship programs are focused on undergraduates and they come in at a completely different level after doing a research degree. And so having students come in and graduates come in at that higher level, they get to focus on strategy, they get to focus on innovation and they give a different contribution. And so this gives them the opportunity to apply those skills and have a moment to understand what it's like in industry. That three months, they can take all of that knowledge back into their research career if that's what they choose to pursue. And so we're just building networks all the time. Um, our Catalyst program is very much around ambassadors. And so we have ambassadors that engage with industry, engage with high school students, and also engage across the whole sector as representatives of ATSI, our National Academy of Technology and Engineering. So I think it's about people at the end of the day. We now have a growing program in a very short period of time, over 800 industry leaders have jumped on board and are knocking on the door to participate. We have 1,300 alumni, and I like to think that in five years' time, 
those alumni are going to be part of our research sector and have shifted their perspective of what it's like to work with industry, what the drivers of industry are and understand their KPIs, their measures, but also industry leaders through their mentoring experience are finding that they're understanding what it's like to do research today in a university. They're understanding the challenges of the, you know, publish or what is it, um, Pia, the publish or perish, thank you. Here we go. Um, you can tell it's at this end of the day. That, that philosophy of deep, deep focus on publications and grants. And, but, but when the two sides start to talk each other, that's where the magic happens. And so to me, it's very much about providing connections, skills and know-how is the secret um, to success. I completely agree with culture. I am already seeing, you know, and it's anecdotal, we can't measure a shifting culture, but I can see it, you know, from the, the beginning to now, I can see that engagement has increased. I can see, you know, much more confidence in our young researchers and engaging with industry. They don't feel as intimidated reaching out to CEOs. And so this is where they get that knowledge of how to pitch their research, how to develop a timeline, how to develop a budget and how do I actually look at my science or my research and, and make it meaningful and make it impactful? And some of them go in whole new directions. So we are measuring that, which is fantastic. And often we see industry leaders coming back and collaborating ongoing with their mentees um, laboratory or with their research group or they're engaging in some way. That to me is success, you know, right there, that it's a start. It's it's the seeds of beginning because universities really need um, a, a strong strategy for engagement with industry that is often missing at a lot of universities. You nailed it, Chris, when you said everything's a black box. It's not transparent and who knows what happens when. And, you know, that the IP agreements and the MTAs get held up all the time. Unfortunately, this does inhibit innovation and it is one of the greatest complaints from industry side. But also that perspective from academia where they really want that um, collaborative focus um, much more as a partnership. And so industry is keen for that too. To me, that's where the making the connections can really help scientists across both sides of the table connect to make innovation happen. So I, I don't have clear elements for success apart from the doing at the end of the day, if we don't drive change. I love the peer envy statement. STEM scientists, we're all very, very competitive. I think it's a little different in the social sciences and the arts. I think you're more human somehow. But, you know, if it works, it works. But, yeah, I, I, I give the people side of it, I guess, to the other aspects as well. Great, thank you so much. Again, a lot of uh, a lot of food for thought and a lot to build on. And I really liked uh, what you said about providing the connections, skills, and know-how, and how it's really it's really about people. And we see that often. You know, anytime we talk about university industry engagement or commercialization, entrepreneurship, fundamentally it comes back to people and being able to connect and uh, you know collaboratively think of, of new and innovative ideas together. What can institutions, what can universities or research organizations, for example, be doing differently to support researchers who have that maybe desire or interest in pursuing uh, maybe more like a non-alternative, not the publish or perish uh, mentality, 
what can they be doing uh, to support these uh, researchers better? I think it's a case of, I've seen a great example of what can foster it organically in a way. And this is where an organisation will develop an internship opportunity for their early stage researchers, their early career faculty, their their postdocs, et cetera. They create an internship opportunity in-house and it's with the BD team, the business development and innovation team. And so I did this when I was younger and you have that opportunity to spend 20% of your time actually embedded doing your project with your BD team as training. So it's not, um, it's, it's not a, a driver, it's not an expectation, it's a training opportunity. And so by having your own work to focus on and getting that really structured support hands-on and that one-on-one opportunity for a conversation with someone who's in the know, they help you develop your pitch, your slide decks, you know, they, they kind of talk you through the whole process. A lot of IP and patent experts came in and did a lot of training. Um, you have that chance to go into the patent database and, and explore and understand it a lot better. Oh, my goodness, you know, developing lentiviral vectors as gene therapy for FA has a suite of different licenses that are required. And they're things that, you know, everyday researchers do not understand. Um, I certainly didn't until I actually got in there and and was guided by people in the know. And eventually those people became part of our group, which was really wonderful. They were just as much a part of our research team as as everybody else. And, And that was the part I loved. I think that's just a tangible, simple thing that's probably low cost. I'll jump in. Um, and I love those points. I think one thing I thought of when you're saying that is um, I also think universities have a bit of a duty of care, uh, particularly to their postdoctoral students. Um, in the UK, there's something called the iCure program, which has its equivalent in the States, and it's basically a, a science uh, sort of accelerator. And um, they always start the presentation to all these budding scientists entrepreneurs with basically the leaky funnel of scientists in academia. And it basically shows that the vast majority of people going through the system aren't going to end up as tenured scientists. Everyone knows that, which means they're going to go somewhere else. Now, some of them could go into industry as scientists. A lot of them won't. And, you know, the data supports that. And so then the question is, you know, what should universities be doing to basically de-risk the fact that these people are working extremely hard in a very narrow area and probably aren't even going to get a career in it? And I think actually entrepreneurship is one of those areas where they can build a huge amount of useful skills. They don't have to go into a startup, they can go into a business. But they are going to learn a lot about themselves and gain a lot of confidence career-wise. And I think providing programs to support that is absolutely crucial. Um, otherwise, you know, you're just, it's quite, a, it can be quite a grim outcome for them sometimes. Um, and they put in enormous hours for the university's publish or perish approach. So I think, yeah, for me, that's a critical part. How can you provide researchers the time to pursue uh, commercialization initiatives? Or because I think in um, uh, RuPaul's specific example, but generally, it's very much focused on teaching and research as an academic. And you don't have to, I mean, some universities, of course, provide the, the flexibility, provide the time, the incentives as well to pursue that. But when you're assessed on a, a traditional academic pathway in terms of number of grants, funding, number of publications, uh, you know, impact factors and all of that, it's really hard to then take a different path. So, Chris, your example about the funnel, I, I really like that. Um, just showing, for example, that 
not all um, just because you're a postdoc, you're not going to end up as an academic. But is there, have you seen anything or, or thought of any other ideas to really provide that space and time for researchers? Only in very limited contexts. So the IQL program in question, so this is funded by UK Research Council, buys out the researchers' time for the duration of the program. That basically buys out at about, I think it's about twenty thousand pounds for basically five months full time. And that in that time, the researcher has to work full time on the startup. Like they can't do anything else. They're not allowed to do research. They're not allowed to even reply to emails. Um, that's obviously a highly limited program. Um, some universities have things like innovation fellows where the academic gets brought out for a year. But by and large, the short answer is no university that I've heard of in the UK does get around this. So the short answer is the researcher has to do it on top of their existing priorities. And they probably have to consider that it might be worth it because the marginal value of an extra five hours in the lab or wherever they're doing their research isn't as valuable as the five hours they might be learning something completely new that could be useful. This It is tough. I do see here that there, there is a shift. So there is becoming more and more space in the Netherlands to actually do these things. I don't know how it is in the UK or Australia, but in the Netherlands, it's also one of the core tasks of the university. So they have to teach, they have to do research and they have to valorize uh, for the academic hospitals. It's of course on top of the patient care. Um, and also we have a whole movement where these public-private partnerships such as the neurocontrol that I work for are becoming more and more important. And by working in these partnerships, you already gain a bit of these, uh, uh, of these skills that you might need as an entrepreneur. But I also think, and, and it's sometimes a bit undervalued, that a lot of these skills that you learn as an entrepreneur are extremely useful for your research. I mean, things like uh, de-risking uh, your uh, your project, see where is the actual value, all these things. I yeah, I I became a better scientist by also working on the entrepreneurial side of my project. So I think we should put a bit more focus uh, there. I fully second that, Yessi, because a lot of our alumni will say, "I'm much more organized in my day. I have much more objectives. I value everybody's time better. I value my time better." So I think forward. I strategize. These are these are things that prior to being exposed to it, they just they just hadn't thought about. And so that is a duty of care that we have to them. And we do need to increase their employability chances, frankly, because it's no different in any country um, around the world, the majority will exit academia in the long term. And so I think that is a really valid point. Um, and we certainly talk about that with our stuff as well. But I think, I think that opportunity to build programs into universities, but also for universities to invest in programs that then support their strategic plan of career development for these graduates. I think that's really effective as well. And so we're seeing a lot of universities start to invest in some programs that are already government funded, for example. So the, the federal government will fund these in Australia and then universities will engage. And so it's, it's a way of providing a one-stop shop that's operating nationally across the board and it's consistent and it's got standards. So we, we are seeing an increase in industry embedded fellowships in mentoring programs and industry engagement programs in commercialization training programs that will welcome right through to mid to senior level career um, researchers and faculty as well. But they're also um, collaborating with each other 
because the way the, the funding has operated, it's come through one core industry growth center, which has enabled a partnership of, of organizations and programs that they've developed. And we all get to talk to each other all the time, you know, the classic Slack channel. And it's so cool though, because we can say, actually, this is on now, you know, ping it to your mentees. And we go, this is on now, you know, ping it to your industry leaders, um, that sort of thing. And that to me is just a really simple dynamic way of bringing people together and upskilling and fertilizing ideas. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Stay tuned for the next episode on the Strategic Partnerships podcast series. Don't forget to sign up for our podcast newsletter and follow UIN on LinkedIn. If you have any feedback or comments for us, please reach out via office at uin.org.